I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast supported by Pragati, a flagship media initiative of the Takshashila Institution. We're a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like to bring a fresh perspective to Indian affairs and an Indian perspective to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hello everyone, I'm Carl Jason, Program Development Manager at Takshashila Institution. And in today's episode of All Things Policy, I'm very, very delighted to have Jaiti Vaidya, who writes on sports business for The Signal, a business and tech newsletter. Hi, Jaydeep. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Carl. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm same here. Very much looking forward to having this conversation with you. So just to give you a brief uh, background to what Jaydeep does. Uh, so he primarily writes uh, this newsletter for The Signal, which is a business and tech newsletter, as I pointed out. And prior to this, he was working for the Ken Southeast Asia edition. If I'm not wrong, and also wrote another very, you know, interesting newsletter on sports business called Moneyball. And, you know, before joining the Ken, he used to freelance as a sports business writer for Forbes, India, Mint Lounge, ET Magazine and Quartz. So, yeah, uh, he comes with a fair bit of experience in the sports business side of things. And I thought it was interesting for us to talk about a topic that has been gaining a lot of traction over at the course of the last year or so, JD, when that is to do with sports washing, right? And I'm sure yeah. as a journalist covering this topic, you would have come across varied sort of ideas and streams of thoughts, your own personal sort of opinion on this. So why don't we start off by maybe if you can just give us a sense of what does sports washing mean in this context, right? And we have the FIFA World Cup that's scheduled to happen a few weeks from now. So for those who are uninitiated, how would you describe sports washing as a practice? So sports washing is basically the concept of, you know, governments which have, you know, say an abysmal human rights record using sports as, you know, a sort of PR tool to legitimize their regimes and distract the public from all their human rights abuses. Mm -hmm. So... This year, like 2022, has especially been a big year for sports washing because it started with the Winter Olympics in February, where, you know, China's abysmal human rights record with respect to their ethnic minorities in the Xinjiang region was brought to notice. And the year will end with the FIFA World Cup happening in Qatar, another Mm -hmm. country whose human rights record has been in public gaze ever since, like, I mean... For over a decade now, ever since Qatar won the rights to host World Cup, which was back in 2010. And about, I think, three or four years ago, there was this report in The Guardian, which stated that some, you know, thousands of migrant workers who were working in Qatar to, you know, build the stadiums that will host the World Cup have died. So, you know, things... Sports washing, it's mainly like, you know, Saudi Arabia has also been in the news, especially in the last year, ever since they purchased a majority stake in the Newcastle United Football Club. And they've also heavily invested in Formula One, golf, and now recently they've also like started making inroads in cricket. So that's another example of sports washing. And you might be aware that Saudi Arabia has a very questionable record on human rights. Mm. Yeah, no, thanks for setting the context to this conversation, Jaydeep. And, you know, as you pointed out, you know, using sports 
to essentially cover up you know a pure human rights record and also to kind of gain that soft power and prestige among the international community is what drives yeah. a lot of these countries to sort of invest heavily in sports and sporting tournaments so i wanted to start off by uh, you know just highlighting this paper by alfred archer et al and it's called sports washing complicity and corruption sports ethics and philosophy a fairly <laughs> long winded title but essentially the paper gives two arguments right on what is distinctively wrong about sports washing and maybe the rest of the conversation can sort of revolve around these two arguments in essence the first argument that this paper makes is that while sports washing brings a lot of monetary sort of benefits to the host country or let's say a sponsor one of its distinctive disadvantages for basically for the athletes right so the athletes who are associated mm-hmm. with the event you could even stretch that to say journalists who cover these events are also you know kind of construed to be complicit in what mm. the sports washers doing so it doesn't really rest alone with or the blame doesn't rest alone with the nation state but it also stretches to other stakeholders right yeah. and the other is basically that you know sports washing when practiced in uh, let's say an unfettered manner what it does is it kind of tarnishes the whole heritage associated with sporting traditions right which people hold very you know sort of very closely and very deeply to them so what do you think is the reason you know that sports washing has now gotten a very bad name because you know i think it's fair to say that this has been done by nation states you know over many many years right and you can stretch this back to even centuries depending on what frame of reference you want to use so why do you think this is kind of taken a, a completely different meaning altogether in the current time yeah so like you rightly said like sports washing is something that can be traced back to like the 1936 olympics well infamously called like the nazi olympics where you know nazi germany tried to like sports wash its image in the world so yeah it's nearly as a concept it's like nearly 100 years old but it's gaining prominence now because you know the media i think in the last decade also has been you know heavily reporting on this which is obviously a good thing and in terms of like the main participants in the sport like you mentioned the athletes i mean obviously you cannot expect the athletes to say boycott an event because like you know something like the olympics or a fifa world cup is you know is something that happens once every 4 years and for many athletes it's perhaps like their only time the only opportunity in their career that they'll get to participate in such an event so mm-hmm. it would be unfair to expect athletes to boycott events you know in support or rather to protest against sports mm-hmm. washing but i mean there are ways by which athletes you know if you talk of individual sports or like teams when you talk of team sports there are ways in which they can express their discontent for example the denmark team which is going to participate in the fifa world cup so their sportswear like their jersey manufacturer hummel has made a jersey where it has blocked out you know it all the logos and all the sponsor logos and everything even of the denmark federation mm. which is basically their way of like protesting against qatar's human rights record and they've also said that all not all a percentage of the jersey sales whatever they'll make from the tournament will go to amnesty international mm. so similarly like the england team is going to wear 
like rainbow colored armband to you know give basically in support of lgbtq rights mm. which is again something that's you know illegal in qatar obviously like you know it has been i mean something even something like this has been criticized because the england team has not really said or done anything about the human rights issue but certainly like there are ways like even lewis hamilton is someone who has like constantly voiced his personal opinion regardless of you know what his sport which is formula 1 makes him like for example saudi arabia hosted their first grand prix last year yeah, and yeah. i think lewis hamilton had won a helmet which had like the rainbow colors again in support of lgbtq rights so i mean there are always ways in which like an athlete or teams can you know protest against a certain regime or an organizer of a tournament with you know without actually having to boycott it and if i had to talk about like the media and journalists again like you know you cannot expect the media to not you know cover the world cup or the olympics but i mean what we can do is definitely be aware of what's going on and not you know put our blinkers on with respect to mm. the human rights abuses and whatever else the host country is accused of so there's always a way to you know bring these things into the spotlight and still you know cover your sport yeah no i find the argument that journalists covering you know let's say the world cup for instance would be complicit is fairly shocking to me because i think the whole point is you don't sort of parrot the propaganda of the host country but you want yeah. to kind of bring out the ground realities of what's going on in qatar and that's why you need journalists there yeah i completely agree with you that you know it's kind of taken a, a completely different meaning altogether another thing i wanted to bring in at this point is you know how sports bodies you know for all practical purposes have been treated as a very neutral platform right that you don't mix politics with sports fifa you know especially has been quite cavalier in taking a stances that you know sort of downplay the you know impact of politics over sports so they you know try to i mean they basically sanction clubs or countries that essentially use you know political symbols for instance right and mm. we saw this during the last world cup for instance but i think this time around with you know the whole russia ukraine war playing out what we see is an unprecedented stand by both fifa and ioc to actually ban russian and belarusian players right so this is like kind of taking it one step further so i think what we see in today's context is also how players are so much part of that national pride right and targeting individual players is now seen as you know uh, sanctioning that country per se right and that has mm-hmm. its own sort of consequences you spoke of boycotts right and how it's may not practical to kind of expect athletes to boycott these sporting events but i think one of the classic examples of where this has worked is you know during the anti apartheid movement you know which essentially cornered south africa and you know they received a lot of backlash for their uh, sort of the atrocities committed to a section of its population so there have been effective boycotts but by and large one of the reasons that boycott is probably not the right way to go about it is also maybe because there are a lot of livelihoods dependent on this right so at the end of the day sports yeah. brings a lot of revenue to the country of course but at the same time it's a source yeah. of livelihood for a lot of people and i think that's where boycotts may not have the intended sort of consequences or the outcomes that you start out yeah. with 
Yeah, so this was again something that even some of the migrant workers in Qatar, you know, said when they were interviewed by the media, you know, they I think I remember reading a story where the migrant workers were thankful that you know they had got this opportunity to work over there and make, you know, be a part of this World Cup. But I think the important thing uh, is yeah, to obviously that does not mean you know, any, their deaths or any injuries caused to them is brushed under the carpet. And also the more important thing is that, yeah, like, you know, the spotlight has been on Qatar's human rights record up to this World Cup. But what's going to happen after the World Cup is more important, you know, because migrant issues and, you know, labor issues in West Asia has been a concern even before Qatar got the World Cup right. It was brought into prominence because of the World Cup. And it's important that once the World Cup is over, you know, we don't lose track of what's going on in that region. Mm -hmm. So I think that's more important. Like, let's, you know, that it's not forgotten once the World Cup is over and everyone moves on. Yeah. No, uh, absolutely agree with you on this. So, Jaydeep, let's take a quick sort of commercial break and come back and talk about what are the implications for, you know, those on the corporate side, right? The sponsors and how they are impacted by being associated with what is a sports washing sort of event. So, we'll be back after the short Hi, uh, we are back with the episode. I'm talking to Jaydeep Vaidya on sports washing and how nation states use sports washing to kind of gloss over some of their human rights records. You earlier spoke about how Newcastle United now majority stakeholder being the Saudi Investment Fund, which by extension is the Saudi Arabian state. So one of the fan groups right, of Newcastle United, it's an LGBTQ plus community. They in fact want to adopt a very different approach as opposed to boycotts. And what they talk about is change through dialogue, right? So rather than burning bridges, they want to work very closely with the owners to improve the conditions of, you know, the LGBT community in Saudi Arabia. And I think this kind of speaks to your the point you made just before the break about how we engage with this issue even after the event is over, right? Which is how do we sort of, how do we reconcile the fact that you have a nation state that's involved in these, say, ownership of clubs or sporting events? But how does this, in fact, translate to a change in society, for instance? And do you think taking this view of, you know, changing through dialogue is kind of just perpetuating this, you know, sort of problem. Like, you know, maybe it's just kicking the can down the road when you know for a fact that there's probably not going to be any realistic change, right, that will take place. So how do we reconcile these two things? Yeah, so, I mean, with respect to Newcastle, obviously, like, I guess the Newcastle fans are, you know, in a bit of a tight spot, (laughs) Because they can't really choose who owns their club. And, you know, considering what, you know, Newcastle has been through under its last ownership, you can probably like see why Newcastle fans are so happy that they've got a new ownership and, you know, which has a lot of money and is investing in the club. But I guess like this United with Pride fans group that is you know encouraging this trying to start a dialogue to improve the conditions for the lgbtq plus community in saudi arabia it's mm-hmm. important for not just them but all newcastle fans to be aware of what these issues are and not just again 
brush it under the carpet. So, I mean, I've seen some Newcastle fans, like this was just when, like fresh into the new ownership sometime last season, when some Newcastle fans had turned up for matches wearing Arabic clothes. Mm. So, <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, going overboard. But there are definitely ways by which, you know, even fans can, you know, make their voices heard and encourage dialogue. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously not, I mean, it, I don't know if it's going to bring about some real change, but at least it shows that the fans are not turning a blind eye to whatever is going on. Mm, got it. You know, so one of the other uh, sort of schools of thought, if I can call it that, is similar to changing through dialogue, right? Or trying to bring about affecting change through dialogue is what Amnesty International is going to be engaged in. And that is, they want to take advantage of the international attention that Qatar is going to receive, right? You know, from hosting this mm-hmm. World Cup, where basically, you know, what is called in psychology as a Streisand effect, right? Which is mm-hmm. when there is an attempt to hide, remove or censor information, it actually has the consequence of increasing awareness, increasing more awareness of that particular information, right? And that's why Amnesty International stance is, you know, fairly useful to look at uh, in this context. So we're looking at how Qatar is hosting the FIFA World Cup, which is a massive tournament involving many countries, many stakeholders, many people. There's also a very significant number of sponsors who are going to, you know, be a part of this tournament. And given that these sponsors are from, say, primarily Western countries. I don't have the data with me, but I'm making a fair sort of guess in this respect. So when these sponsors host or when these sponsors are, you know, sort of spending money on uh, hosting this tournament in Qatar, what could be the potential PR backlash for this? Because we live in a day and age where everything that a sponsor does just gets out uh, on social media uh, and there are sort of, you know, public debates on this that also take place. News channels kind of uh, chime in. So could you maybe shed light on what could be the potential PR backlashes for, let's say, corporates or sponsors when they sort of associate with what is essentially a sports washing event? Yeah, so especially when it comes to events like the Olympics or the FIFA World Cup, they've got this primary partners who have, you know, been with them for years and years, like, I think Coca-Cola has been, for example, associated with Mm. FIFA for a very long time. And now with the whole controversy over Qatar, it's obviously any sponsor that's associated with such a tournament will also get caught up in that whole net. But I think if sponsors are in a bit of a tight spot because they have, you know, multi-million dollar deals with the organizing bodies, but Again, like what's important is that, you know, you can still show that you are aware of these issues. And at the same time, you know, you're not expecting a Coca-Cola to, you know, pull out of FIFA sponsorship ahead of Qatar 2022. But it can, you know, publish uh, statements or really, or press releases or get one of its top bosses to speak on these issues and say that, you know, we are pushing FIFA or the Qatar government into dialogue. Because a lot of these brands also like support causes like, for example, Airbnb had 
I think, donated to the Black Lives Matter movement. And Airbnb is another sponsor of FIFA. So on one side, you are showing your support for one movement, but on the other side, turning a blind eye towards, you know, human rights in Qatar. So it's a difficult position to be in as a sponsor. I guess what you can do is that, you know, at least put it out that you're aware of what's going on and show that you are trying to engage the concerned authorities into a dialogue over these issues. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, maybe we can just leave with one uh, final thought here, uh, JV, and that's to do with how most of these narratives on sports washing seem to come from a very Western-backed narrative, right? Mm -hmm. And that's clear to see in the countries that are targeted, right? So take Saudi Arabia, Russia, and some of the other China, for instance, again, now (laughs) at the receiving end of sort of the Western ire. So I think it's also important for us to not make this a global South problem, right? And I think it it tends to become one, especially when these are Western-backed narratives. So I think, yeah, that's that's also important to keep in mind because you just need to stretch back a few hundred years to sort of pin the Western countries or nation states for the problems and atrocities that they caused, right? Oh, Um, yeah, totally. Yeah, so, yeah. I think that's that's an important thing to keep in mind, uh, especially since a lot of the arguments against sports washing is from a, a Western sort of uh, reference point. But yeah, thanks, JD. It was great to have you uh, today on the show. Do you mind telling your uh, sort of Twitter bio where people can find you, your handle rather, and the newsletter that you write currently? Yeah, so I write a weekly newsletter on the business of sports and gaming. It's called The Playbook. It comes out every Friday at 4 p.m. You can find a link to the newsletter on my Twitter handle, which is Jaydeep Journo. That's J-A-I-D-E-E-P-J-O-U-R-N-O, Jaydeep Journo. So just like, yeah, you can find a link to the newsletter and you can sign up. It's absolutely free to read. And uh, yeah, do let me know how you like it. Thanks a lot, Jaydeep. It was uh, wonderful having you on the podcast and I hope uh, all those of you who have listened to it also had a few takeaways from this episode and you can also weigh in you know, with your comments uh, once the episode drops. Thanks a lot, Jaydeep. Hope to speak to you again soon. Yeah, thanks, Carl. Thanks so much for having me again. If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IBM Network. You can tune into them on the IVM Podcast app, ivmpodcast.com, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy, and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at takshashilainst or our website, takshashila.org.in.